Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Josh, come on up. Father, thank you for your words. Um, thank you for the heaviness, uh, the irony of that, that short passage. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds. Um, let us hear from you this morning. And Lord, we ask that uh, you would speak through Josh, um, that he would be your faithful conduit this morning. Um, we look forward to hearing from you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. You all can have a seat. So let me start out with just a real straight question. Anyone been in a conflict lately? So many people not willing to raise their hands. Uh, maybe your kids, maybe I'll jog your memory, your wife, your coworkers, anybody? I don't think a week goes by that I don't get into a conflict or that I'm not a part of dealing with some kind of conflict. Um, whether it's a very grumpy customer, um, issues with coworkers, with my wife and family, or someone else completely, I experience it regularly, on a regular basis. Um, and I think, for some people, conflict is very much like a difficult thing that they avoid, that they just shrink away from, and they avoid it at all costs. I, on the other hand, I don't, it doesn't bother me. I, the thing that bothers me about conflict is when people don't want to resolve it. So I, I won't shrink away from it, I just don't like it when people don't want to deal with it. I hate it when conflicts are not resolved. A couple of years ago, Harmony and I bought, uh, we moved here, and we bought um, some furniture and some appliances, and we bought this uh, washer and dryer set. And just recently, we found out that the washer, the noise that it's been making the entire time that we've had it, which has subsequently gotten worse, is actually meaning it's broken. We just didn't realize that. We just thought it was noisy. And so we call the company that sold it to us, unnamed company, and they're like, sorry, it's been more than a year I'm like, this thing's supposed to be good for eight to ten years, right? Then we talk to the manufacturer, and I'm like, hey, your product, you know, that thing that you advertise being, like, good to go for a long time? They're like, nope, sorry. And so we keep, we, we kind of have this washer, this very expensive item that no one will replace or fix. And so I'm, like, super frustrated because I'm like, I got this noisy washer. I've got this, like, nobody's willing to fix it. Nobody's willing to replace it. And no one's willing to make it right. So you better believe Harmony gets on the phone. She starts emailing customer service. She's doing, you know, putting stuff on Facebook and whatever, Facebook pages. And zero, zero results. And she's very polite. You know my wife. She's very polite, very but very direct. And uh, so currently, we have this unreconciled issue, and it is driving me nuts. Because I'm like, somebody needs to f resolve this thing, make it right. Worse, though, is when those kinds of unresolved conflicts happen with people. You aren't right with someone, and they won't talk to you. And it'll go days, or weeks, or even months, or years. 
Maybe they don't think it's necessary. Maybe you don't think it's necessary. Or, or you, this, this great line, time, time will heal it, which is like maybe my most frustrating f- uh, phrase I've ever heard in my life. Time, time heals it, which is not true. It's just a lie. Maybe we assume that the person on the other end of the conflict isn't willing. Well, I, I just don't try to resolve it. I don't try to talk to him because they're not willing. Like, have you, do you know that? Have you talked to him? Well, no. Yeah. Conflict just goes on remaining unresolved. And it happens all the time. But as Christians, are we really allowed? Are we really okay? Are we really permitted, biblically, to let relationships go unresolved? Today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Ephesians, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and one of the key things he addresses is the idea of reconciliation. And this is, if there's one thing that I would like you to just kind of have in your mind as the key idea for today, it's this. Being in Christ means Jesus' blood reconciles us. Being in Christ means Jesus' blood reconciles us. I want you, it'll be on the screen here, but let me define reconciliation. I'm throwing it around, but let me give you a definition of it. It means the restoration of a harmonious relationship between two parties. In the New Testament, the term refers most often to God's restoration of his relationship with sinful humanity through Jesus Christ. It's, it's the restoring of relationship that was broken and is now made right. And not just like, we're okay, now you go separate ways. Like, we're, we're close. We're united. That's reconciliation. And what this definition is pointing out is that God has reconciled us. And I'm saying that should affect the way we live. Paul is saying that should affect the way we live our lives. So let's pray, and then we're going to take a deeper look into what this passage has to say about God's reconciliation and how it should affect us. Gracious God, we are, we are all flawed people. We are all regularly having conflicts in our lives. Whether we are avoiding them or we're engaging them, they're there. Because we're sinful and we live in a fallen world of sinful people. But God, you have reconciled us to you. So speak to us from your word this morning as to what that means. What are the implications of that? And let that affect our lives. We pray that in your name. Amen. I'm going to set the scene for you, okay, about this passage. I'm going to give you a context. I want to remind you that we're talking primarily, when Paul's talking to the Ephesians, he's talking about two groups of people, the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Those are, the, those are your two basic groups of people, okay? And the letter is written primarily to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people who believed in Jesus, okay? And for all intents and purposes, let me just make it really clear, the Jews hated the Gentiles. Jews hated them. They despised them. They looked down on them as unclean people, godless pagans, and they avoided them at all costs. There was a little bit of conflict involved between those two groups. And one writer uh, that I came upon this week says, in speaking about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, says this, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created, this is, this is like intense, they were created by God to fuel the, to be fuel for the first of hell. That should be fuel for the fire of hell. That's what they thought the Gentiles were good for. God's God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he made. It was not even lawful 
among the Jews, to, to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need. For that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a, Jew, a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of the Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was equivalent, was the equivalent of death. Are you, do you get that? They're only good to burn. And if my kid, if my Jewish kid were to marry a Gentile, they're dead to me, so we might as well just have the funeral, and they would carry out a funeral. I've, this still exists, by the way, this, this kind of hatred between Jew and Gentile. Um, the Jewish people at large, um, specifically in, in Israel, but some even in the, the States, they still have a disdain for Gentiles. When my um, father, who was raised Jewish, um, became Christian and married my mom, a non-Jew, they basically cut my dad off. Like, that's right there. They didn't have the funeral, you know, but they, they cut him off and they cut her off. What do you see here? You see in this relationship God's people hating other people, looking, on, looking down on them, and even unwilling to care for them in their need. And of course, in one sense, we could say, well, the Gentiles were separate from the Jews because they worshipped false gods, and that was wrong. So, so, you know, that's why the Jews were keeping their distance, because they were worshiping all these false gods. We could say that. In another sense, we could say, though, that the Jews really positioned themselves to never be willing to approach the Gentiles about God. So you might worship false gods, but I'm not even going to try and help you with that. I'm not even going to try to approach you with that. It's pretty hard to be an example to someone and share your faith with them if you hate them and avoid them. And that's kind of what they're doing. So in a very real sense, the sin of both the Jews and the Gentiles isolated them from each other. And so the first thing I want you to see as we study today's passage is this. Our sin breaks relationship. Our own sin breaks relationship. Remember where we've been these last few weeks. Chapter 2 begins by describing the state that we were in before we knew God. Absolutely dead, following Satan, slaves to our selfishness, bound for God's wrath. That's the state we had before Jesus. Then in verse 4, a very stark contrast. But God, being rich in what? Mercy, love, kindness, grace, makes us alive and he saves us. Paul makes very clear, this wasn't anything we did that made us deserving of his salvation. He did it based on his character, his grace. And he saved us so we could walk in new life, not in the sins that offended him to begin with. So with all of that as this backdrop, Paul is writing chapter 2 to the church, and he says, again, primarily made up of Gentile Christians, remember your former state as Gentiles. Verse 11 Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He uses this phrase, remember, but he wants them to remember, you didn't have relationship with Jews. They used this derogatory term. They had this, this, this negative connotation. They're like, they're just the uncircumcised. They're just the unclean people. They're just the godless people. They just had this, like, way of referring to the Gentiles that was just, we don't, we dismiss them. We don't care about them. 
They were simply known as the non-followers of God. And so the Gentiles had broken relationship with God. They also had broken relationship with God's people. This, this wasn't just, I'm trying to explain this, this wasn't just some kind of cultural undertone where we just kind of like, we all know there's this unwritten rule that, you know, we, we don't really like this group of people and they don't like us. It's not, it wasn't that subtle. It was much more public. The Jews separated themselves from the Gentiles publicly, the uncircumcised. John Stott, in his commentary, says this, that the temple in, in Jerusalem where the Jews worshipped God had three separate courts on it, or in it. One for the priests, one for the men, and one for the women. And they were all on the same level, like same elevation. But for the Gentiles who converted to following God, they had to walk down a set of steps, walk around a wall, walk down another set of steps, around another wall, and they could be in the outer courts. Can, can you feel that? Can you feel that separation? The lower class Christians? Can you feel the, dis- the distance between them? Our sin, both in this case Jew and Gentile, but the sin separated from both God's people and God himself. I think it's worth noting, too, that um, it, as we understand what's going on here about circumcision, God pulled this man named Abraham aside a couple thousand years earlier than Jesus, okay? And he says, I'm going to make from you a people that is mine, right? And, he, and I'm going to, all of your descendants, they're going to be the Jewish people, and I'm going to give you a sign that indicates who this people will be. And so all your males, this is the sign, will be circumcised. And so one commentator says, why did he do this? And in trying to understand why would God do this, he wanted to separate this people for a reason. Why separate, like, why would you want to be exclusive like that? Well, here's the reason. He wanted the world to see and notice them, the Jews, to realize that they did not live and act like other men. And second, he wanted them to be so distinct that they would never be amalgamated with other peoples. What does he mean? In other words, he separated the Jewish people so that they could be examples to the world, the lost world that didn't worship God, but he also wanted to protect them as his followers from influences of false gods, right? So there's this tension. There's this tension. He's got him, he, he wants them to be a people that is a light to the world, Right? But at the same time, he's trying to protect them from being inf- influenced by darkness outside of them. Right? What does that remind you of? The church and our call to be in the world, but not of the world. This, this fine tension, that we're, this line that we're always trying to, to, th- to, to walk, where we're trying to influence the world and bring them to a knowledge of Jesus that saves, but not do it in a way that like sacrifices what we believe. Not adopting the cultural idols. Not adopting... Uh, pagan beliefs. The Jewish people were given a mission. It's, it, but here's what MacArthur says in his commentary that they did with that mission. They continually perverted them into a source of pride, isolation, and self-glory. They perverted their call into a source of pr- Pride, isolation, and self-glory. So instead of saying, oh, okay, we're called to be different 
but to care for the, those around us. They just saw the cultural identity, the, the, the laws, the commandments, the circumcision, all the different things, the rituals. They just saw that as that means they're better than everyone else. And they were arrogant, self-righteous, looked down on those around them. That's not really that foreign to us, right? We live in a country where this, we have a history of racial prejudice. Black people weren't welcome in white churches, right? Um, historically, black people had to sit in the back of a bus. Same kind of racial prejudice. We're separating people. We're communicating hate and that they're not welcome. Today, we do it. So not just historically, not just biblically, way back in history, but even today we do that, right? We feel uncomfortable with certain social groups, economic groups, political groups. We separate ourselves. Even people in the church, we will look at ourselves, we'll say, oh, well, I'm, I follow God's standards on whatever, um, finances or uh, sexual purity or um, you know, whatever you, want, whatever you want to look to for your own sense of satisfaction. And, and we, we attend church on Sundays every regular, right? And we say, oh, look, at we're better than those outside of the church. Doing the same thing the Jews did to the Gentiles. We have customs. We have traditions. We have things that God calls us to. And we say, oh, if we're keeping them, we must be better than those who don't. And we elevate ourselves and put down others. Circumcision was meant to identify God's people. It was a symbol. That's it. It didn't actually make a person love God. It didn't actually make a person follow after God. They weren't actually any more deserving of God's forgiveness because they had been circumcised as a child. They were still sinners in need of God's grace. It was just meant to identify them as a people that God was bringing to himself. Obedience to God should come from the heart a heart that genuinely loves him, and it doesn't mean that he's going to love us because we're obeying him. It just means that we obey him because he's already loved us. We are susceptible in the church just as much as the Jews were to the pride, isolation, and self-glory that the Jews were. We have to be aware of that. So in both our history and the Jewish history, we see broken relationships. But sin didn't just separate the Gentiles from God's people. It broke their relationship with Christ. In verse 12, let me read that to you. Remember, Paul says, that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. What, do you, you're catching all that? You're separate from Jesus, you're separate from Israel, and you're without hope, and you're without God. In other words, they had a broken relationship with God. They were unreconciled to God. But then something happens, and this is the second point. Jesus' blood reconciled us. Verse 13. But now, in Christ, Jesus, you who were far off, once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were brought near to God, verse 13. You were brought near to God's people. Everything that had been true, where you were separate from God, separate from Christ, separate from Israel, now, Gentile Christian, you are brought near. Everything that Paul described in, in the separation has been reversed in one single act, and it's Jesus' blood sacrifice. 
Jesus's blood is what reconciled the Gentile Christian to the Jewish Christian. Look at Hebrews 9 with me. It'll be on the screen. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. A tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread, and the presents, it is called the holy place. Beyond, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. So he's just talking here about the Jewish uh, way of interacting with God, and they did it through a priest. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests, so after everything's all set up, the tent's all set up, they would tear it down, they would set it back up, you know, every week or whatever, and after they have it all ready to go, he says, after these preparations have thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. They just do that on a regular basis, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, because the priest was sinful as well, and for the unintentional sins of the people. There's this pattern of worship and to approach God and for the priest to come and approach God on behalf of the sinful people. He had to bring something, blood, a sacrifice. This was the system that God had ordained for the people to worship him and to approach him and for their sins to be forgiven. And so you bring in the blood of what? A bull, a goat, a lamb, whatever. And this basically implies the idea that this animal was a substitute. They were punished for the people's sins instead of the people being punished for their sins. It was a substitute sacrifice. But, look again further at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, meaning he was standing before the presence of God, the most holy place, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the bloods of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our own conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, Jesus was a greater high priest than the Jewish priests and high priests that they had in their day, with a greater blood sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats. And what he did didn't wash sins away for a year or a, a day or whatever. He washed sins away permanently. Once for all, guilt is gone. Once the blood sacrifice was accepted by God, we were reconciled to God. No more dividing walls. No more separation from God or from each other. So now, Paul is recalling all of this to the Gentiles, and he's saying, now you are reconciled to God, so you can be reconciled to your Jewish brother. Have you ever noticed in churches that it's just made up of a like total like hodgepodge of people that just don't normally hang out. History professors, photographers, teenagers, old people, 
old people being in their 40s, rich. Lower income, upper income, one race many, with many races, right? It's, we would not normally, like, just flock to each other. Wouldn't happen. And you could say, you could say, you could argue, like, okay, but, like, there's all sorts of clubs and groups and, and, and hobbyists that they connect over something. I've been a runner, right? And so that just kind of transcends age and race and all things. And so that brings us together. That's true. And there's all sorts of things like that in society, clubs and different connections. But none of those things reconciles a person to another person, right? Me running and having a running buddy or, have, have, like, sharing in hobbies and uh, photography or whatever, none of those things actually reconciles me to a person. Because if I get ticked off with somebody in that club, I avoid them, right? They ignore me, right? They're content to be at odds. Just, I don't have to deal with that person. I'll just join a different club. But not the church. The thing that unites us is the thing that reconciles us, both to God and to each other. We're only in this room because we're actually interested in the God of the Bible, the sacrifice that Jesus made. The only reason. And so when we offend each other, what happens? The same blood that reconciles us to God should drive us to reconcile to each other. We seek as a church to work our stuff out, to restore what was broken, to live as brothers and sisters, not as enemies, because to not pursue reconciliation amongst each other is to deny the gospel. I'm going to reread that to you. To not pursue reconciliation amongst each other is to deny the gospel. To leave unresolved conflict existing among ourselves is to say the gospel is not true. I want you to listen to the words of 1 John, verse 5, chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then jump down to verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and him, in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The, the connection is very clear. If you say you follow God and you say you trust in his sacrifice, then you do not tolerate disunity amongst the church. You don't accept it. But if you say that you follow God and you accept his grace and his forgiveness and, and, and understand how offended he was at your sin, and, but, but you've accepted his forgiveness and grace, but you don't do that with each other, you're just full of crap, is what a paraphrase of 1 John. It's not true. You're a liar is what he says. You're still in the darkness, and you don't even know where you're going. You're deceived. So hear me when I say this. To not pursue reconciliation, to let anger and unresolved conflict, hate and bitterness fester, is absolutely anti-gospel. And according to John, is a mark of someone who's not been changed by the gospel. Cars, hear me. Look at me for a second. Do not let conflict go unresolved 
amongst us. Push past the awkwardness towards unity. Do not allow it to remain. I want you to notice what Paul is saying here. It's kind of odd, in a sense, that he's calling the Gentile Christians to remember something about their past. Remember that you were separated from God. Remember that you were separated from God's people. Remember your unreconciled state. Why would he call them to remember that? Because he uses that word twice. Remember, verse 11. Remember, verse 12. Why does he do that? Wouldn't you want to forget those things and move on to the better and the happy days? Remember that. You were separate from Christ, the Jews, the promises, God himself. You had no hope. Remember that. Why do that? Why encourage them to do that? For this reason. Because remembering our reconciliation brings hope. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Why is Paul saying to remember this darker time of their history, of their spirituality? Because when you play out the whole timeline and you know Christ has brought you near, that brings hope. You had no hope, and now you do. And only in remembering where they came from can they begin to appreciate what God has given them and strive for reconciliation that in their own relationships. And the same is true for us. The moment we forget that God has saved us, the moment you and I forget that, which happens regularly. We, have, we all have our moments, right? We all have our moments where we get a little, little arrogant, a little proud, a little cocky. Thought, think we're kind of deserving. The moment we do that, we'll stop worshiping God as our Savior. And the moment we stop worshiping God as a Savior, we'll start to look down on those around us and focus on their sins, overly so. Paul Tripp, he's one of my favorite authors. Um, I quote him probably too much. Um, but in his book, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, he, he says this, Worshiping God as Savior means that I acknowledge that I'm a sinner in relationship with other sinners. I remember that you are still in the middle of God's work of redemption, as am I. Basically, we're not there yet. God's redemptive work of change is ongoing in all our lives. When I forget this, I become self-righteous, impatient, critical, and judgmental. You've got to remember the past so you can play out the whole history and see the hope, and that will affect the relationships you have. Think, think of someone, think of that person that you might have had that conflict with this week, or even somebody you just are unreconciled with right now. Just think about that for a minute. And if I asked you, you got them in mind? If I asked you, what did they do to hurt you? What did they do to offend you? It probably wouldn't take much effort to recall that pretty quick. You pretty instantly tell me. But if I asked you, how did you sin against them in thought, word, or deed since that offense? It'd probably be a lot harder. It'd probably be a little more stuttering, take a little more time before you could acknowledge those things or even admit to those things. When we remember what God has done for us, it causes us to, to remember that we need reconciliation. We need his forgiveness. But it, it should propel us to reconcile with each other. It should propel us to stop holding grudges because God doesn't hold grudges. 
It should cause us to want to make our relationships right, all of our relationships, because, and, and to do whatever it takes to make our relationships right. Why? Because when we look at Jesus, he did everything. He sacrificed everything, even his own blood from his body, his own life, to make us right with God. Remembering our need and that God met our need and reconciled us gives us hope for future reconciliation. And so the last thing I want you to see is remembering our reconciliation honors God. It's not us who brought about our reconciliation, right? It was all Jesus. We have absolutely nothing to boast about. He says that in the verses 1 to 10. And so when we remember our reconciliation, we remember what Christ did, we bring glory to God. You can't really bring glory to myself. You didn't stand before God and say, here's some blood. We're good now, right? No, you had to throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. And so he should be receiving the glory. So Paul points the Ephesian church and us to remember what Jesus did so we praise God. I want you to remember this one little word at the very beginning of our passage today is what? Therefore. And whenever you see therefore at the beginning of a passage or a sermon, you ask yourself, what is the therefore therefore, right? And so when we read... This is the reason for everything that happened in verses 1 through 10. That's therefore why Paul says what he does today. We remember that Christ did the saving. Paul wants to call these matters, one commentary writes it this way, Paul wants us to call these matters to their attention so that they will have a greater understanding and appreciation of the past and the mighty reversal Christ has effected on their behalf. Remember what Christ did, and it brings glory to Christ. It brings praise to God. He bore the cross. He bore the punishment. He was the rescuer. We brought nothing to the table, so we have nothing to boast about. So, Chorus, hear me when I say this. Our sin, also like, just like in this passage, our sin breaks relationship. But being in Christ means Jesus' blood reconciles us to God and to each other. So remember that reconciliation and let it give you hope for future relational reconciliation. And as you remember it, praise God. As you, as you guys walk away today, I want you to think about, <clears throat> I'm always curious to encourage <clears throat> application of what we study and what God's word is. And so I often have said that I think one of the biggest problems in a church, in any church, not other churches, not like the ones down the street or across the, you know, the street or whatever, even ours, the biggest problem in church is unreconciled conflict. People get offended, that's normal, but then they refuse to reconcile. That's not biblical. That's not Christ-like. That's anti-gospel. They're content to stay angry with each other and never reconcile. So I ask you this first question. Who are you unreconciled to right now? Who are you unreconciled to right now? This isn't, this isn't just like, oh, okay, so, so I really wish, this isn't the moment to like set, think to yourself, I really wish so-and-so was listening to this sermon right now. This is for you. Who are you unreconciled to right now? 
In what sense do you look at others around you or someone else and say to yourself, they don't deserve God's forgiveness and they don't deserve my forgiveness? That person, who's that person in your life? Second question, who are you withholding forgiveness from? Who are you withholding forgiveness from? To do so is to have the same attitude the Jews had toward the Gentiles, this proud, angry, even racist attitude of hatred. Men, I think this is worth noting too, in our homes, we're called to be the ones who lead out in reconciliation. I hate having conflict with my wife, but I hate even more being the first one to say I'm sorry. Just true confessions. I hate it. I would prefer to admit what I've done wrong after she's admitted what she's done wrong. That's true. You can verify, you can fact check that in about five minutes. That is something I hate doing, and that's wrong. That's pride. I need to be the one leading out in reconciliation. Men, you need to be the ones leading out in reconciliation. Married or not, I, I had a situation just this week at work where this huge conflict was brewing. I had nothing to do with it, but it was amongst people I worked with. And I stepped in. I involved myself, and I said, listen, let, let's, let's figure some things out here, but let's make sure we understand we're not enemies here. And by the end of it, it did work out. And people were getting frustrated and bitter, and, and it was, she said this and he said that, and there was a lot of assuming and gossip. And I just said, listen, this does not need to happen here. Kind of bold, kind of weird maybe, but I don't know. I think God calls us to be bringing reconciliation wherever we're at. So in your workplace, we should not be the ones as Christians who are gossiping. We should be the ones pursuing unity, even with the annoying coworker, right? Don't do what the Jews did. Right? Don't forget the mission that you've been given. They forgot the mission and they blew off the Gentiles. They forgot the call to be pure, but to be an example. They just said, we're pure and we're better than you. That's not us. We're not better than anyone. We're really not. None of us. We've been given, though, this ministry of reconciliation. Listen to Paul's words, these final words from Corinthians. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's you and me, right? He's a new creation. He, she, he or she. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ did what? He reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, or through Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, you and I, the church, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we be, might become the righteousness of God. Understand your ministry, understand your mission, Karis, that you are the ambassadors of Jesus. And so you cannot be an ambassador of Jesus and, and proclaim a ministry uh, or a, a message of reconciliation if you're just content to be unreconciled with people. You can't hate a person and then bring them a message of reconciliation. It doesn't fly, right? You can't effectively be content with unresolved conflict and be an ambassador of resolution. 
of reconciliation. So hear me when I say this. Remember your reconciliation. Pursue reconciliation and proclaim reconciliation. Let's pray. God, these words are hard because um, the fact is we all um, experience conflict and we all want um, uh, to be protected from people who hurt us. We all want to avoid um, those who offended us. But you didn't approach us that way. You said, I love them even when they were my enemies. God, all of us have relationships that we need to pursue towards reconciliation. All of us have the same mission and the calling to proclaim your reconciliation. Give us boldness. um, Give us humility to admit when we've done the offense. And give us grace to pursue unity and reconciliation with each other and with the world. We pray that in your name. Amen.